Spring Break Breaking Point. It was full on danger. I'm done. Deja vu all over again. Why the chaos? What's the answer? Now, will it help? Sure. Absolutely, because it limits the locations that people can go and congregate. The clerk will lock the machine and announce the vote. Permitless carry a big step closer. This is a God-given right, and what we're doing today is we're just upholding that right. The party line vote, but for one. The Republican who said no is with us today. The birds and the bees and the laws. This rule basically says that we're sticking to the standards. The politics of sex education. They don't listen, they don't care. I didn't expect any different today. The change is coming. There were a lot of questions about age appropriate. Well, this, this clarifies it. Suddenly condemned and evacuated. We don't have any violations. So why did you close every single floor? Why here? Why now? And what's behind the forced exits? God forbid a fire or other emergency exists in that building and someone perishes. I knew and chose to do nothing about it. A lot on tap this hour, all live this week in South Florida. Good morning, I'm Glenna Milberg. A lot going on today, a lot of events going on around South Florida as we come on the air today. None with as much state and national attention as on South Miami Beach. After two fatal shootings on Ocean Drive last weekend, you heard Miami Beach city leaders do what has become a familiar debate about what to do, and we will go there in just a minute. First, though, to Ocean Drive right now, where there was no curfew this weekend, but a significant ramped up police presence. And Trent Kelly is right there for us. Trent, good morning. Good morning there, Glenn. Uh, while that full weekend curfew that you just mentioned was ultimately voted down by the city commission here, they did end up passing a more limited curfew applying only to liquor store sales in the entertainment district. That measure, as we all know, now being battled in court. But when it comes to curbing the chaos out here, it seems as though the thing making the biggest difference so far is that surge in FHP troopers as ordered by the governor late last week. A show of force on South Beach. Troopers checking IDs and trunks in an effort to keep the peace. The new DUI checkpoint near 5th and Ocean operated by the Florida Highway Patrol. At least one man put in handcuffs Friday night as officials attempted to curb any additional spring break chaos. The extra enforcement coming after a deadly weekend in the entertainment district last week. First, a man was shot and killed along Ocean Drive on St. Patrick's Day. One man detained in that case. Then a second person also shot to death more than 24 hours later. Police arresting the alleged gunman just a few blocks away. And ever since that new checkpoint was established on Friday night, no additional shootings have been reported here in the entertainment district. At this point, though, it re remains to be seen exactly how long those FHP troopers will be stationed here. State officials saying earlier in the week they are prepared to stay as long as they're needed. Reporting live from South Beach, I'm Trent Kelly. Glenna, back over to you. Trent, thank you so much. You know, this week in a heated emergency meeting, the split on the Miami Beach Commission was obvious in a four to three vote to forego that curfew Trent talked about this weekend. But as he said, they put in a curfew on package stores and liquor sales 
That move prompted that lawsuit, and even the police chief said it probably would not make a difference. Those two separate shootings, fatal, hours, and blocks apart last week, added another level of horror to the annual anger and frustration of what they call spring break on South Beach. And much of that anger comes from those who see and feel a racial component to the response. So just think about it. If they block off Ocean Drive from 5th to 12th, and they put all these young people in this drug-infested area with nothing to do. And mind you, I've given them plans after plans after plans of how to organize spring break and Memorial Day weekend. It goes in one ear, out the other. You can buy anything on Ocean Drive, any day of the week. It doesn't have to be spring break. Prostitution is on Ocean Drive. Drugs are on Ocean Drive. Okay, yes, and they all know it. They want to turn it into Disneyland, but don't blame us. Please don't. Don't blame us, because we don't have nothing to do with it. This week, one of the commissioners who broached more unusual and provocative ideas like metal detectors and making Ocean Drive a closed and ticketed venue, he is here with us this morning. Ricky Ariola has been a beach commissioner for eight years and an equal number of spring break season mayhem. Ricky, it is great to see you, and thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me on this morning, Glenna. Nice to see you. Thanks. So um, this is as complicated, really, as it is entrenched because of all the stakeholders involved. You have, obviously, the spring break, legitimate spring break visitors and tourists, and you have the businesses who rely on them. You have the people who take advantage of them, troublemakers, criminals who come to take advantage of the crowds. You have residents who are tired and sick of that crime. You have investors looking for development opportunities. Have I missed anyone? How complicated is this? Yeah, that's a pr pretty thorough list. Uh, it, it, it is complicated and uh, it is getting frustrating because it's year after year, the same nonsense uh, and tragedies that we face as a community. Um, and, you know, we're meeting tomorrow to have a, a very serious discussion on what further steps we can take to just end this once and for all. The commission's meeting tomorrow? Who is that? What meeting? Yeah, we, we have a commission meeting tomorrow. It was a reg regularly scheduled commission meeting, but at the top of the agenda will be uh, spring break and actions taken, what's worked and what hasn't worked. So context is always important. Um, history is repeating itself right now. So it's important to take kind of a, a look back, and you're a longtime beach guy. Um, this annual issue is probably more than 20 years old and seems to be repeating with the same kind of components every year. Now, though, unlike 20 years ago, there is social media. There are many more guns on the street. So so what haven't you tried and what might what might be different this time? I think one of the things we're going to be talking about tomorrow, we talked about it last week at our emergency meeting is you know taking the area that we know to uh, typically be problematic let's call it ocean drive and it's not you know necessarily um just ocean drive but predominantly ocean drive because of the sort of the, the geography there's a park there's a beach walk there's a street it's iconic a lot of people like to congregate there are lots of outdoor cafes so th that tends to be the central hub where people congregate uh and so the question will be you know what can we do to make that area safer so that we don't have any more of these tragedies. So what is the reaction to ideas like gating Ocean Drive and making it 
an actual event. And right now, this weekend, you have kind of an apples to apples comparison right across the Bay. Ultra Music Fest is that. Certainly there were arrests and some issues there, but, but no shootings and no deaths there. It is a ticketed venue. It is a price tag for admittance. There are magnetometers. There are bag checks. Is that a fair comparison? Personally, I do think uh, is a fair comparison. I, look, I, for one, uh, several years ago in 2019, when the ultra contract was up with the city of Miami Beach, uh, with the city of Miami, uh, I was one of the few commissioners to propose actually bringing it to Miami Beach uh, because not only does it bring a lot of revenue, but also it's something that can be done safely. It's a great example of a public park, so not unlike Loomis Park on Miami Beach, that there's an event, Ultra Music Fest, that is uh, a ticketed event, uh, it's gated. Uh, there's security procedures, security uh, provided by the uh, venue operator, uh, in addition to off-duty and on-duty police. And then you mentioned bag checks, uh, um, it, you know, and other security uh, measures such as, um, um, you know, uh, wanding uh, guests and uh, and that kind of thing to make sure that nobody's carrying in weapons. Uh, and then you know you have hundreds of thousands of people there all weekend uh, and you know, very, very few incidents, uh, if any. I don't know if you were able to hear at the beginning of our segment together, uh, we had a little clip of sound from a couple of people, a business owner, a, a black business owner on the beach, and Luther Campbell, who is a very powerful voice in this community, a hip-hop icon, a football coach now, but a free speech defender. Um, if, you, if you weren't able to hear what he said at the beginning, you've heard from him through the years because he is laser-focused on trying to find a solution to this. And, and he essentially is reaming government officials for not listening to turning a deaf ear to his proposals to embrace spring break and organize it and program for it instead of making it a free-for-all. I, I wonder if you would react to, to his comments and his perceptions. Yeah, well, first of all, as someone who is a uh, big fan of, uh, of Uncle Luke, uh, Luke Campbell, and uh, have been for, I guess, going on 40 years now, um, I, I hear him and, and I'm, I'm sympathetic uh, and empathetic to, to what he's saying. Uh, you know, out of fairness, he hasn't proposed anything to us in a number of years. I would love to take him up on his offer if he wants to propose something for next year. But, you know, a ticketed event, uh, you know, a programming, something I've been championing for the eight years I've been on commission, uh, something sensible that is um, going to be safe, uh, bring good crowds, uh, would be something I think this commission is uh, open to. We, we have been programming, so let, let me let me just start with that. I mean, right now we've got a major activation going on on Miami Beach uh, with with a, a major fitness uh, operator. And you know, two weeks ago we had the food and wine festival, we had the winter party, so we are programming. So the the question is, you know, can we do something, particularly this third week of March, which has historically been our most troubling week in terms of the crowds, the behavior. Uh, and I think that's something we're going to be very seriously looking at tomorrow and in the coming months to do something that is uh, safe, attractive to the spring break crowd, consistent with the Miami Beach uh, brand. And I think we're going to be successful uh, doing that. I, I want to pick apart a couple of words that you just used, if I may, respectfully. Um, you yes. talked yeah. about programming. Uh, you mentioned a couple of programs. You mentioned bringing good crowds. The programming on the beach now, as, as wonderful as it is, and bringing good crowds, 
uh, along with the mayor who said he does not want this spring break on the beach. Are you trying to change the crowd of people coming to the beach for spring break? You're trying to change the behavior, right? So people who bring guns and violence, not welcome on Miami Beach. People who want to come, have fun, uh, are absolutely welcome to come here anytime they want. And do you have the stats where you can acknowledge that the, the troublemakers are not spring break legitimate, I'll use the word legitimate, spring break visitors? There are plenty of visitors who come legitimately on their spring breaks. The troublemakers in the crowd, um, we've seen arrest reports, are young adults, not spring breakers. They come from uh, around the state and they come from across the bay. And in particular, last weekend, um, several of them brought guns. It, is there an issue yeah. with not spring break at all, but those who would take advantage of it? Yeah, it, it seems to me, it seems to our police uh, department that embedded in the actual spring breakers, kids that are here uh, on college on their spring break, embedded in that are troublemakers who come to either prey on them, whether it's uh, to sell drugs, to take advantage of them, uh, to, to, to basically embed themselves in what is, you know, a very typically, you know, peaceful, law-abiding crowd and embed themselves and create chaos and violence. That's what we need to weed out. Yeah. Ricky Ariola, we will be watching that meeting with you, and I know everybody is very anxious to see something really good finally come from this on South Beach. So appreciate your time with us this morning. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Glenn. Next up, permitless carry, permitless gun carry is halfway to the governor's desk right now. A party line vote in the state house, but for one Republican who said no, and she is with us next. now and a legislative session on jet fuel. Bills are flying through committees. The biggest and most controversial passing along the Republican supermajority party lines. And this week, the governor already has signed some into law. That will likely happen with a bill they call public safety, which you'll know better as permit-free gun carry. It is on the way to the Senate, having passed the full house this week. That too passed along party lines, but for one Republican who voted against it. And that state rep is Vicki Lopez in her first term representing District 113 from Miami to Coral Gables and Key Biscayne. Vicki, great to have you aboard again. Thank you so much, Glenna. Great to be with you. So was this a principled vote, a gutsy vote or both? <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm not sure that it's gutsy. I think, you know, it's always easy to do what you think is right for your district. And for District 113, I truly believed, um, after speaking to so many people in my district, that their their perception of you know the current law as it as it is now um, makes them safer and when you represent a district that is, is very dense um, with many people living in a very close urban area i think that public safety is always on the minds of everyone and i i truly believe i mean i did a lot of research glenna i went back to the original right to carry law in 1987 that was actually supported by the NRA and by the United Sportsmen of, of Florida. And, you know, it was their their intent at that time was to allow people to, to carry. And, you know, I'm one of those people that has a concealed weapon license and um, 
feel very strongly about self-defense. It's one of the reasons why I why I own a firearm. But I think that the the, the intent in 1987 um, really holds true today. People actually thought that you would you could strike the balance between the right to carry as well as um, the right to ensure that people were safe, right? And so in that law, they actually listed out disqualifying offenses of people that they thought might not should have a gun, um, not the least of which is people with domestic violence injunctions, people that have been convicted of felonies, um, people that have uh, multiple DUIs. I mean, there are there are certain um, disqualifying characteristics of, of what they think is a good candidate for the right to carry. You don't need a license to have a gun in your home or in your car. Um, so that wasn't where they thought that the danger might be. They thought it might be, you know, upon the, the right to carry, right, to have it on your person. And so, you know, in talking to people in my district, they didn't think that there was a need to change anything. Um, and, and quite frankly, remember that 10% of the applications, the highest number of applications for a license come from Miami-Dade County. So I, yeah. I had to I had to find that balance and felt strongly that nothing had changed between 1987 when the when the current law was put into place and today. And what I think has changed is there's far greater people living in District 113, particularly people that have moved from other states um, post, you know, during the pandemic and post pandemic. So, you know, for me, it's what my district wants and needs. And um, that's mm -hmm. what I think is real representation. That that actually is the definition of <laughs> representation. <laughs> and you, um, you know, worth it to say, you flipped that district red in the last election. You ran as a center-right moderate Republican. You are a Second Amendment supporter. Um, I, I want to just sort of frame this really interesting debate that we've talked about on this program over this bill. For, for supporters of this bill, it's about gun rights. And for opponents of the bill, largely it's about gun safety. And what's so interesting is that gun rights and gun safety are pretty much everyone can agree on both. And so there are these series of amendments, to your point, to try to make um, the safety component a little bit more black and white. And, and a lot of the Democrats did broach amendments like uh, like training requirements and keeping a gun from a um, someone who was convicted of a misdemeanor, violent misdemeanor. Would one of those, none passed, but would one of those or more of those have sort of changed your view and maybe changed your vote? Possibly. I mean, I, I'm really concerned about the training. I myself, um, you know, underwent a three-day course um, where, you know, I learned not only what the law was, um, but I also learned how to protect myself. I mean, it's a huge responsibility to carry a firearm. And I am I'm painfully aware that I can take someone's life. And I want to make sure that I'm a responsible gun owner. And I think I became much more responsible knowing how to use my firearm and in the circumstances in which how I would use that firearm, right? So the fact that, you know, there is money in the bill to to help with training is a plus, but it's not mandated. And quite frankly, I don't think people are going to just naturally want to go, do, you know, do their training unless it is mandated. And I, you know, look at I know it's a complicated issue, Glenna. I I I understand both sides of the issue, especially being a supporter of the Second Amendment. Um, but listen, crime is up in my district, unfortunately, um, both in Brickell and in downtown. And I think that for all of us, we, you know, the perception of living in an urban area is 
we we can do both. We this bill does not in any way, you know, my my opposition to the bill did not in any way say that people can't own guns. I mean, I certainly believe in the right to own a gun. I just believe that you should be well trained to use it. And if you have a, a convicted, if you're a convicted felon and you have domestic violence injunctions, I just don't see the reason why I I, I wish you wish yeah. upon you or anyone else in our district that you would you would actually carry. You know, um, we want to take a, a quick break, but there's a couple of questions about the politics of this to a political veteran that you are that I want to broach. So stay tuned. We'll be back in two with Vicki Lopez. with State Representative Vicki Lopez, Republican of District 113, the lone Republican in the House to vote no on the permitless carry bill that is now headed to the Senate. Vicki, the, um, the bill is, the, the headline of it for everyone is permitless carry, and that's what we've heard the debate about, and that's what we've been talking about for months now. But there is millions of dollars in programming and hardening of schools, earmarked for school security. In fact, the bill was renamed public safety because of that. And I wonder if that kind of gave you pause voting against a bill that had that kind of component in it. It did. It did, Glenna. Um, and I wished it had not been combined. I wished there had been a school safety, public safety bill separate and apart, because certainly I would have voted for that. Um, I've been a real proponent of making our schools safer. I'm concerned, uh, again, uh, in the urban areas, our schools, you know, people are walking to and from school. There's access to our school children. And so um, it was a difficult it was a difficult choice there because because of the combination, it, it, you know, I had to vote against something that I would have absolutely been a proponent and a co-sponsor of so that was difficult yes but you knew it was going to pass though was that Pardon was me? that sort of i mean when you voted no there's no doubt in your mind that this is going to pass and the governor is going to sign it right was that i knew fair? that yeah. Uh, yeah absolutely i knew it was going to pass but again i have a a, a very interesting and diverse district right i have 39 percent of the voters are no party affiliated um and and, and so my sense of the way I have to represent my district is I have to govern, you know, for all the people and I have to put people over politics. Um, and truly, I'm I'm a person who really loves my district and am willing to listen to everyone and then have to formulate what's best for that district based on their input. Sure. So I want to ask you sort of uh, take our viewers like inside and behind the scenes. People know that there's horse trading that goes on, there's conversation, there's whipping of the, of the vote. You're a freshman in Tallahassee, but you are a total veteran of politics in the state political world, a former commissioner in Lee County, um, a lobbyist of sorts, an advocate. And, um, and I, I wonder if you're concerned that there might be consequences to this vote i.e. a committee assignment you might have wanted and won't get, or a bill of yours that might be backburnered to teach you a lesson. I, I feel like it's, I'm going where we know there is to go. And, um, and I'm hoping you just kind of give our viewers a behind the scenes of what your concerns are, if any. Uh, or not. I, I actually don't have any concerns about that. I'm. I am very proud uh, to say that uh, you know our leadership uh, understands um, that I. I think they understand who I am, right? And I think they understand my district. And um, I was very comfortable having conversations with leadership about this. And never once did anyone 
make me feel as if um, not voting along party lines was going to somehow, you know, uh, endanger or threaten uh, anything that I want to do. I mean, I think that they recognize that I have a lot of um, experience in Tallahassee, that even though I'm a freshman, I'm not a freshman. Um, but I do believe um, that leadership and certainly Speaker Renner has been very supportive of allowing me to give voice to my district, a district that we have flipped and a district that I know better than anyone. And I'm so grateful for that because it never once was a difficult vo a vote to take in any way. I mean, I wasn't fearful. I wasn't, oh my God, what could possibly happen to me? On the contrary, I felt very good about them listening to me and actually respecting that I would take that kind of vote and be the only no vote on the board. So on the flip side, maybe the House Speaker knew that one no vote wasn't going to change the outcome and this was an opportunity for him to showcase you to your district as in a very, you know, split district as someone who really does take care of her constituents. How's that for strategy? Well, that, that would be brilliant. Um, and I do have a lot of respect for Speaker Renner, and I know him to be a really good listener. And yes, I mean, I'm sure he knew that we would pass this, but he has a lot of respect for the individual members of his chamber. And I, for one, am always the recipient of that, not only from him, but from his leadership team. So I tell you, if this is the way it's going to go, I'm going to be very honored to serve under his leadership and in the House of Representatives, because I am going to continue to be a very independent thinker and a person who is going to represent her district in the best way in which she thinks that that can be done. And so grateful for the opportunity to do so. And you know, we here are always ready to amplify anybody who is leading our state, who is fair and who is a principled thinker and takes care of constituents. So it's always a pleasure to have you here, Vicki. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Glenn. It was great being with you. All right, change is coming to sex education and by default, sex health education as schools move to do what they think state law requires. Broward County will unveil its changes this week and we have a preview of that next. to get a first look at how Broward County Public Schools will be changing its sex education and health education curriculum to make sure it fits within the guidelines of new state laws. The Parents' Rights in Education Law, the one opponents call Don't Say Gay, prevents curriculum about sex and gender identity from kindergarten through third grade. And this session, there is a bill to expand those guidelines through eighth grade. Alan Zeman is a Broward School Board member with us today for some context and a little bit of a preview. Alan, great to see you. Oh, Glenna, it's always great to be on this show with a graduate of a Broward County High School. <laughs> Glad to have you. Okay, well, I'll take that. Um, so let me, uh, let me just sort of find the context here. The, the curriculum, the bill that's, that's in this session that expands the parents' rights curriculum, to eighth grade is what Broward schools are doing right now in preparation for that? It is, uh, Glenna. Uh, we've got uh, some legislation that passed last year, some that will pass this year, um, and we uh, always will comply with the law. Uh, but what we're finding is that what the legislature has done is just not consistent with the values of South Florida. And so we will create uh, a program. Uh, it's essential that we have a great one um, and we will comply with the law. We, we always do. 
but the issue is how do we uh, make sure that the sex education that we teach in Broward County is the, the, the type of sex education that's best for our children. So sex education to many people is health education, one and the same, especially as taught in schools. And that means um, as far back as we were in school, that means about your body and body parts and biology and menstruation and birth control and uh, sexually transmitted diseases. And in the draft of the curriculum that we see, much of that has been removed. Why wouldn't that be comporting with the law because it's science? Well, uh, in many regards, I feel like the 1950s is calling and they want their health or sex education back. Uh, this is not a step forward. This is not a step that will allow us to deal with some of the threats that we have today, the online pornography, the sext, uh, sexting that goes back and forth, um, the sextortion. Uh, those are the realities of things. Gender uh, identification, sexual orientation, uh, these things are either not going to be covered uh, because uh, school districts are cautious about the approach, but they cannot be uh, taught uh, many of those topics uh, kindergarten through third grade. So in my mind, and, and you are going back a long way with me, I've, I've been around for a few decades, Glenna, but the truth of the matter is we have to have sex education that's... Uh, uh, you know, consistent with the reality of the world today. Our world is hypersexualized and woefully underinformed about sexual health. So let and me. And we have to make sure we turn that around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but let me go back to something that you were saying. So the bill actually talks about sexual identity, gender identity, in K to three. Right now, is not allowed to be a part of the curriculum. But that taking that out as per the law, there's really nothing in the bill that talks about health, uh, what I would call sexual health, like menstruation. Let's just take that as a, there's nothing in the bill that says you can't teach young girls about, about that and how it happens and why it happens and when it happens. Because for many young girls who don't really understand when they see it for the first time, mm -hmm. it could be fifth or sixth grade. But that is science and not anything that, that I've seen that's banned in the bill. Uh, absolutely. Uh, the state standards say that to teach menstruation starting in sixth grade. Uh, there are many people in, uh, who have written to me and talked to me about uh, how that has changed, how uh, young women and young men are maturing earlier than ever. And sixth grade is probably too late for that particular topic. We probably need to back it up into fourth and fifth grade like we've taught it before. But what we've seen with the legislature is that they've created a Florida state standard now for health education and their rules that came out of the Department of Education have led teachers to be scared to teach health education. So it's uh, more of a of doing something wrong is you'll lose your license. So it's is it to your to your point and my understanding you correctly it's the vagueness of the law that's leading to a chilling effect where teachers choose not to take chances and teach something would, would that be valid? Absolutely. So there are some topics that you cannot teach from kindergarten or third grade. Um, the challenge is, can we get teachers and can we get a curriculum passed through the Broward County School Board that allows other things, that those things to be taught from fourth grade and beyond? And can we have good, strong, comprehensive sex education? I mean, one of the things we know, Glenna, is comprehensive sex education has led uh, students to have less sex, to be more aware of decisions. And in a world where you know, 60% of high school girls, 
uh, say that they um, have become uh, sad or hopeless. One third have said they've thought about suicide and 14% have reported that they've been forced to have sex. We need to make sure that we are providing comprehensive sex education and health education that beats those numbers down. Mm. You know, um, Dr. Zeman, in the, in the couple of minutes we have left, I want to ask you about the universal school voucher bill, uh, priority bill for the for the House Speaker, bill number one, and uh, passed the House and Senate on its way for a governor's signature. We've talked a lot about it on this program, and I know public school proponents, and as a school board member, I'm guessing you're one of those, uh, really fear the ramifications for public schools. Has, has the Broward Board talked about that at all, what to expect? The Broward Board has, um, and, and, and we're nervous. In fact, me personally, as one of nine members of the school board, thinks that vouchers may be uh, a, a bill that has, or, or a policy that has greater effect than uh, permitless carry, which I think in Florida, uh, permitless carry is scary to me. I mean, I've lived here, my, I'm born and raised here and lived here for a long time. It scares me to death to have permitless carry. But vouchers, the way that it's been proposed um, could take a significant amount of money away from public education. You know, it's it's really going back to the fundamental belief that Samuel Gomper started with the American Federation of Labor in the late 1800s. We wanted everyone to have access to a good education. And vouchers has a risk of taking away up to 20% of the money from public education without taking away one student. And if that's the way the funding goes through the Senate and gets signed by the governor, it's going to have a devastating effect on public education in Florida. Isn't it? I mean, I would guess one of the real concerns is you just don't know what the effect would be because you won't know how many families choose to leave public schools. Absolutely. But, Glenna, from a practical standpoint, we have to hire teachers. We have to have schools. We have to have all of the staff that are required to provide a great education for people in a place like Broward County. But the way that vouchers are being done up to 50,000 students in Broward County who currently go to private schools can just sign up and get $8,000. So this is like a big giveaway program to people who probably don't need the money as much as other people do in a, in a county and in a state where we're 48 out of 50 in terms of paying our teachers. Why can't we take that money and give it to teachers instead of giving it to people that have already chosen to go to private schools. I just don't think it's good policy in Florida. You know, this is, um, there. there is as always two sides and two perspectives and probably more to this debate. I would love to bring you back and, and have that robust discussion with some of the supporters of this as we see what the effects are. That would be great. And I appreciate your time this morning. Glenna, it's, uh, it's great to be on your show. And thanks again. Go Patriots. <laughs> thanks. All right, next, the sudden raids, the rush to evacuate. It's happening in Miami to residents and businesses left in the lurch. But why? A lot of questions for a Miami commissioner when we come back. What about everybody who's in the building right now? They're in the process of moving out. With no warning and no planning, the people and the businesses at this historic Huntington building in downtown Miami were rushed out, evacuated last week, told the building was an unsafe structure. Turns out the building is solid and standing, though is closed for what the fire marshals label as unsafe for what has been explained as some unpermitted construction and materials crowding one of the exit stairwells. 
Why does this rise to a level of discussion today? Well, because there are questions about this and other sudden inspections, questionable indefinite evacuations, and decisions that leave residents and businesses wondering who the city is protecting. Manolo Reyes is the Miami commissioner who met with and answered to tenants of the building late this week and here to answer some more. Manny Reyes, great to have you on the program. Well, thank you for having me in, Glenna. So I, I want to, of course, so I want to start with, you know, um, the Miami Fire Department, the firefighters out there last week, they were doing what they know as best life safety practices. That is not in dispute whatsoever. But what we want to focus on is the Huntington building, but level this up to a bigger picture discussion because the tenants there are wondering why all of a sudden were they targeted for an inspection when they hadn't been in so long and the building is actually very workable. Can you answer that for them? Well, yes, yes. Uh, of course, I, uh, I spoke with the fire marshal and I asked him why he was there. And uh, the answer is very clear. Whenever you have uh, a business in the city of Miami, you need a CEO and you need a BPR. That's a business license that in order to operate. Uh, they, according to what uh, the, the uh, zoning director uh, uh, told me, and I know all of this because as soon as I found out about this, uh, this problem, well, uh, I called a meeting with uh, all the directors uh, that, uh, that uh, were involved uh, the city attorney and the city manager in order to find out what what happened and what is the best way and what methods uh, uh, methods they have to use uh, in order and measures to expedite the the process and get those businesses back in uh, 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 and actually I mean back, back in business again and uh, and uh, what I was told is that uh, there were life safety issues. And uh, they were there because they were checking the BTRs and, and uh, the CUs since they had not received uh, answer from the uh, businesses that they were notified that they should renew since November their BTRs and the business licenses and, and the uh, certificate of occupancy. And uh, while they were there, they, I mean, they always come and whenever there is a BTR or a certificate of occupancy involved, the fire marshal comes and they make an inspection. And during that inspection, uh, they uh, found a lot of violations that, uh, that they consider according to their standards that, that they are life safety issue that is what they yes some. that that is what they told the residents but here here's uh, i just want to level this up a, a little bit and we don't have a lot of time together today but there were we've covered stories of this very same thing happening to residents of an apartment buildings in little havana um, and in both cases investors had been inquiring into buying properties right before the inspections came and all of a sudden all of these properties have all kinds of fire code violations and renovations to do, a lot of money to spend. And the people, this isn't me talking just for the record, the tenants and the businesses are very afraid that they have land that developers want and the city is really coming in, not on behalf of the developers so much, but to really expedite what might be a clearing and making better of the properties. Does that make sense to you? Well. Those are insinuations that come along and, uh, and people that they, they start uh, <laughs> making those insinuations that uh, I don't have any proof of that. 
I don't I don't have any any uh, information that they are uh, investors interested in this uh, property or any other property. What it is true that uh, uh, that now uh, I will I would say this after what happened in Surfside. Uh, our inspectors, and uh, not only in the city of Miami, all over the county, and I think probably in the state, they are more careful and uh, and in an abundance of uh, of, uh, of of caution, they are probably acting too fast. But we don't want another suicide. We don't want a, a, another collapse, a building collapse. No, of course not. But now, I, I mean, now, that's kind what of I, what I'm saying, Lynn, is this. Uh, what I'm not what I've been informed and what I have been doing. What I've been doing is I've been trying to work uh, in a system uh, or, or develop a system that will, uh, uh, will in, I mean, uh, accelerate the process. Uh, to that effect, what I, I, I proposed uh, last Friday in a meeting with the with the uh, uh, business owners in uh, in downtown Miami was that uh, um, down, downtown development authority. And the city of Miami, we will work in partnership, opening uh, an office at, at street level in Flagler Street. So all the businesses that they have been cited, they could have come, they could come real fast and get the, the CUs and the, the BDR, as well as those buildings that they need to get permits for repair. Those permits should be accelerated. And I'm going to bring that to the whole city of Miami. As a matter of fact, I have established already that that system in two of my parks in um, Corrugate and uh, West End those two parks what they are with, they are located on 32nd Avenue and 16th Street and 60th Avenue and 3rd Street every uh, I mean every uh, second Thursday uh, 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 Tuesday and think uh, think second Thursday we have uh, personnel and we have officials from the from the city of Miami that will help every single business I mean homeowner navigate through the mess of the process of getting obtaining a permit we are going to do that in downtown miami and all over the city so we have a, 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 a real speedy process to cure all those violations that have been cited for is this the is this new legislation that you're proposing the new i've been proposing the legislation that I will free those uh, businesses that uh or tenants that they want to establish a business in a in a building that has a violation which is not which is not i repeat a life-threatening violation like it's in this case because the the uh, legislature the actual legislation what it does it it uh it precludes uh, a business to open or, or continue uh, uh operating if they have uh, 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 the, if the building itself has a violation. Now, what I'm, my, my, my uh, legislation, what it's going to do, it is going to, you can have, uh, a, 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 I mean, if you have uh, a, a violation and uh, you have been cited, then if it is not a life-threatening uh, violation, those businesses that they are established in that building, they could continue operating or, and they will be able to obtain a CU and a BTR while... I, um, Commissioner, I'm going to, I need to stop you because you know how TV goes. We're kind of out of time, but really interesting legislation. You know we're going to be following that, and I really do Whatever appreciate you, you jumping on with us today. <laughs> Whatever you want, Glenn.
I like that. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Sarah. You too, and we'll be right back. today's interviews or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast, just scan this QR code right there with your phone and it takes you right to the This Week in South Florida section of Local10.com. And we are online 24-7 and you know you're a big part of this program and you can easily connect with us on social media. Find, follow and reach out right there at Glenna WPLG on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And as always, we thank you so much for being here this hour and remember, keep in touch.